Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. like to welcome everyone to episode eight season two of criminology we can't wait to dive deeper into the case of the east area rapist golden state killer right we have a lot of new patreon supporters so we want to give shout outs to them we had cynthia cooper aaron lotterhan newbold bledsoe she jumped out at our highest level Morgan Murphy, who's a big supporter of TCAT as well, so appreciate that. Devin, Devi Dev Grover. What do you think about that, Morph? I think I know Devi, and he's uh, one of our strong supporters on social media, so we really appreciate him too. It's awesome. Fun Toe Mop, and I'm probably not saying that correctly at all. We had Valerie Power, Mike Beats, and Lisa. So a lot of support. We really appreciate it goes a long way towards helping defray the cost of putting out the podcast. We can't thank you enough for your support. We really appreciate the time that you take to not only listen to us, but also help support us through Patreon and on social media. It doesn't go unnoticed, and we just want to say thank you. We just want to remind you about our book, Criminology True Crime Podcast Presents The Case of the Zodiac Killer, which you can pre-order the Kindle version by visiting Amazon or our publishing partner in this venture, Wild Blue Press. Just go to wildbluepress.com forward slash Zodiac pre-orders. And Wild Blue Press has some great true crime books. And as a special offer to listeners of Criminology, Wild Blue Press is offering a free audiobook download. All you have to do is go to wildbluepress.com slash audio dash books. And CrimeCon is coming up fast. If you're still thinking about going, if you're going to make that decision, make sure you head over to crimecon.com. Use our promo code CRIMINOLOGY to get 10% off your standard badge prize. And speaking of CrimeCon, we want to let you know that there will be huge Golden State Killer presence there. There will be in-depth panels with the likes of Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes, who helped finish writing the great Michelle McNamara book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And we had a chance to sit down and talk with Paul Haynes about that book, which has been a best-selling book for weeks and weeks now. And we'll bring you that conversation in some format this season. Jane, who is the East Area Rapist's fifth victim, and Margaret, who is the 27th victim, will be there as well. And they'll be alongside Debbie Domingo, who lost her mom and her mom's boyfriend to the Golden State Killer, as well as Michelle Cruz, who lost her older sister. And they'll all be on the panels and spreading awareness of this case, talking to people and answering questions. And we'll definitely hear from all of them this season on criminology. So be sure to check out those great panels and stop by their booth. And I'm going to try and volunteer some time So stop by and say hi. So before we dive into episode eight, let's do a quick recap on episode seven. We talked about the heartbreaking case of Brian and Katie Majori, who were murdered in Rancho Cordova in February of 1978. We detailed the police investigation that has been ongoing for the last 40 years. And then we talked about another attack in the city of Stockton on March 18th, 1978. 
We heard from Officer Tom Spivey, who had staked out an area right near the victim's home and arrived to help them within seconds of police receiving the call from the victims. It's very possible that the East Area Rapist escaped as Officer Spivey had the area staked out. The day after the latest Stockton rape on March 19th, the Stockton Record ran the following article breaking the news that the East Area Rapist had returned to Stockton. Sacramento's notorious East Area Rapist struck in Stockton for the second time early Saturday in the fashionable Park Woods neighborhood east of Pacific Avenue. It was his 31st victim since June of 1976. Police said the victim was an attractive woman in her 20s who was bound and raped between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. while the man she lives with was tied and helpless in an adjacent room in an unrelated crime. A 17-year-old girl from Northern California visiting friends in Lathrop reportedly was abducted and raped last Friday evening. San Joaquin County Sheriff's deputies declined to release any details of that incident pending further investigation. The Park Woods couple was freed by police at about 2.30 a.m. after the pair managed to tip the phone receiver off the hook and contact the operator for help. Said Stockton Police Detective Sergeant Robert Grude, who headed the Special Rape Investigation Unit after the rapist first struck here in Lincoln Village West September 6th, said there's absolutely no doubt who it was. Grude said Saturday's crime was a carbon copy of a string of rapes that began in Sacramento in June 1976. The rapist is believed responsible for six rapes in the Sacramento area since the September crime here. He struck three times in October and once each in November, December, and January. He has been identified by a style that includes quiet early morning entry, the use of a flashlight to blind his victims while he binds them, intimidation with both a knife and a gun, and a ski mask and gloves to conceal his identity. Grude confirmed these elements were all present in Saturday's crime. He would not say whether the rapist took time from his sex crime to avail himself of the food in the refrigerator, a practice that has been noted in some of the rapes. Grude said the woman was not injured beyond the trauma of the rape itself. September's crime was followed by a host of rumors that the victim had been in some way mutilated. That has not been a feature of the rapist's style. The man gained entry through a rear door, police said, because it was broken and could not be locked. There were no pets or children in the house, authorities said. The couple was awakened by a flashlight. The rapist ransacked the house before he left, police said, but Grude would not specify what articles were taken. The rapist has taken jewelry and cash in the past. Police have no definite suspects and are encouraging concerned citizens to telephone any information or suspicions they may have. Sergeant Grude saying, quote, sooner or later, one of these calls could lead to the apprehension of the man responsible. If they feel they know who the subject may be, they shouldn't hesitate to call, unquote. Grude, whose special rape task force was abandoned in the months following the September rape, said police officials will confer on what steps to be taken in light of Saturday's crime. Saturday's night watch, Lieutenant Dennis Perry, officers would be added to the force immediately. He did not specify where they would be used. Despite being on alert, Stockton PD was not able to stop the East Era rapist from once again striking there. Back in Sacramento County, Police continued to investigate the Missouri murders and debated whether they were killed by the East Area Rapist. It had been almost a month since the recent Stockton attack. On April 14th, a couple who lived on the 1000 block of Casalada Way asked a 15-year-old girl who lived nearby to babysit their eight-year-old daughter for the night. The eight-year-old's father, who worked for the State Department of Water Resources, 
wanted to take his wife out to dinner. The girl had babysat for them before without incident. This area was in the western portion of Sacramento County, more than 10 miles away from most East Area rapist attacks. So people in this section of the county weren't dealing with the constant fear that Eastern Sacramento County was dealing with. The teenage girl arrived at the home to babysit around 9 p.m. and the couple left for dinner right away. By 9.30, she had tucked the eight-year-old into bed and then started to watch a movie. The teenager had just gotten comfortable when a crashing sound startled her. She turned around and saw a masked man walking in from the back door, which had been deadbolted. The man ran towards her with a gun, not leaving her time to do anything. He talked softly but deeply and warned her not to move or he would kill her. He immediately ordered her down to the floor face first and tied her hands behind her back with shoelaces. As he tied the girl's hands, he warned her not to move or he would stab her with his ice pick. He added that he just wanted food and money and then he would be gone. While the bound teenager was lying on the floor, the intruder made his way into the kitchen and started going through the cabinets and drawers. The attacker then went through the girl's purse. He picked the girl up and covered her face with a blanket to act as a blindfold. He forced her to walk to another room. When they got to the room, he shoved the girl down onto the floor and tied her ankles together. He then left the room before returning a few minutes later and untying her ankles. He turned her over and unzipped her pants. The terrified girl started to struggle and the masked man told her to shut up or he would kill her. At that point, he said, I've wanted to rape you for a long time. And he addressed her by her first name. He started a raper and the phone rang. The assailant paused his attack as the phone rang several times. A minute later, it rang again and the man paused again before the phone stopped ringing. The attacker didn't know it, but the caller was the eight-year-old's parents calling to check to make sure that everything was okay. After not getting an answer twice, they were concerned and they called the babysitter's parents home to let them know that they were worried. The attacker left the room for a moment and returned with some lotion that he applied to himself and then to the teenage victim. He attempted to sexually assault her for a second time when the phone once again rang. This time, it was the young babysitter's parents who were now worried and wanted to call to check on her. The man pulled the girl up and made her walk to the phone to answer it. He forced her to hold onto his penis as they walked. He then ordered the girl to say hello and then handed her the phone. The terrified girl said hello to her parents who were on the other line, but then the man swiftly hung up the phone. Her parents, sensing something was wrong, decided to go over and check on her. They got dressed and walked up to their car to make the one-minute drive to the home on Castle Out Way where their daughter was babysitting. The attacker made the girl touch his penis, and then the phone rang once again. This time, it was the eight-year-old's parents calling. The man ignored the call, and it finally stopped ringing. All of these phone calls must have made the attacker uneasy because he scooped the teenage girl up and walked her outside to the patio where he once again tried to sexually assault her. But suddenly, a car pulled into the driveway, causing the rapist to pause. It was the teenager's father who immediately jumped out of the car and yelled out. Hearing her father's voice, the 15-year-old screamed out to him and her father raced into the yard, but the masked rapist had vanished. The girl still had the makeshift blindfold on 
and she couldn't tell which direction he had left in. The father freed his daughter and brought her inside where they called police. The eight-year-old girl was safe in her room. Police arrived on the scene shortly after 10 p.m. The entire attack had not lasted very long, maybe 15 minutes or less. The 15-year-old victim was able to tell police that her attacker was under six feet tall, but couldn't pinpoint exactly how tall. She guessed he was in his 20s. During the questioning of this young victim, she revealed that she had been receiving prank calls at her home on Piedmont Drive during the previous two months. In one of the calls, a man told her, I fucked your sister. In other calls, the male caller would say things like, let me sell you out. The most recent call had come only a couple days earlier. When police questioned the parents of the eight-year-old, they told police about something that had happened only a few nights before the attack. While the father was out of the house, the mother was watching TV with her 14-year-old daughter. It was then that they heard a bang outside their door on the patio, but the pair had been too afraid to look outside. The police canvassed the neighborhood Speaking with neighbors, one witness reported seeing an out-of-place blue Cadillac in the area in the weeks leading up to the attack. Another neighbor had found that someone had been prowling in her yard and had repeatedly left her gate open. Another resident on Rio Lane, just a short distance away, had heard someone scratching at their window, but their dog started to bark and scared the prowler off. Earlier on the night of the attack, only about 15 minutes after the parents had left, another witness saw the same blue Cadillac. It pulled into the driveway of the home where this attack happened and then backed out and drove off. And then just prior to the attack, a neighbor heard their dog barking and thought someone was in their backyard, but didn't see anyone, so they dismissed it. So in examining this attack, We have to consider a lot of things. This was an area of Sacramento County that was not typically targeted by the East Area Rapist. Also, it was the second recent attack on young victims in which the rapist simply kicked the door open as opposed to taking his time and trying to be stealthy. Perhaps he was growing impatient by this time. During April, police had released a revised sketch of the Missouri shooter after closely talking with the witnesses of the shooting. One of the witnesses had gotten a very good look at him up close from her window. When this sketch was released, the East Area Rapist left Sacramento and searched out victims in other Northern California counties. It appeared that the heat was on him too much in Sacramento County, or perhaps the revised sketch closely resembled him and forced him to leave. After April of 1978, Sacramento County residents would be able to breathe easier, but the rest of California wouldn't be safe. The East Area Rapist wouldn't appear again until June, but when he did, It would be in a rapid succession of attacks over a two-day period in two different counties. Modesto is the county seat of Stanislaus County, and it's about 75 miles south of Sacramento. In 1978, the population of Modesto was just under 100,000 people, and the town consisted of rich farmland, tree-lined roads, as well as a heavily used railroad system. It was vastly different from Sacramento County, and residents there never had any reason to fear the East Area Rapist. But that would all change on June 5th, 1978, when he would strike in Modesto for the first time. On the 3800 block of Fuchsia Lane, a 27-year-old woman, her 24-year-old husband, and their young child were fast asleep 
when a tapping sound awoke the two adults at around 3 a.m. The pair opened their eyes only to find a hooded man shining a flashlight at them. A voice hissed out to them through clenched teeth. Wake up, motherfuckers. Once the couple was fully awake and realized what was happening, the man who was holding a gun on them told them that he had a 357, and that if they moved, he would blow their brains out. The intruder ordered the male victim to lie face down, then threw the woman a shoelace and ordered her to tie her husband's hands behind his back and to do so tightly. Once the woman tied up her husband, the assailant forced her to lie face down, and then he tied both her ankles and her wrists together before retying the male victim even tighter. He placed the barrel of the gun he was holding against the male victim's head and cocked it, warning him not to move. The masked intruder told the couple that he just wanted food and money for his van that was parked outside, and then he would be gone. He walked out of the room and started rummaging throughout the house. After being gone for a few moments, the intruder reappeared and warned the couple that if either one tried anything, that there would be, quote, two dead people. The masked attacker turned his attention to the female victim and placed a knife against her neck, ordering her up. In the process, he cut the bindings on her ankles. Once again, he placed the gun against the male victim's head and warned him that if he moved, he would kill their child who was asleep in another bedroom. The masked attacker forced the woman to the living room and then shoved her down on the floor. He then walked into the kitchen and gathered some dishes and took them back to the victim's bedroom. He stacked the dishes on the male victim's back. After stacking the dishes, he walked back out to the living room where he raped the female victim. After sexually attacking the woman, he threatened her and demanded money, and she gave the rapist approximately $1,500 in cash. The assailant then told her to remain still, not to move, and he walked away. Following a few minutes of quiet, the victims both freed themselves and checked on the young child who was still asleep before calling police who arrived a little after 4 a.m., Now, by this point, we know that this is classic East Area Rapist M.O. Gain entry, subdue the victims, separate them, place dishes on the man's back, and so on. But this was not something that police investigating this attack were aware of. Because the East Area Rapist had never struck in their county before, so to them, this seemed as if it was a random home burglary and rape. The victims described their attacker as wearing a dark ski mask and clothing. He was white, about six foot tall, and fit with a medium build. They also told police that it sounded like he had a slight stutter and that he sometimes sounded as if he was speaking with a fake Spanish accent. When the investigators asked the couple if they had any previous problems, they reported to them that they had received several hang-up phone calls over the previous month but that the calls had ended a few weeks before. In one final call, a male caller said, I want you on my lap, to the female victim. Police questioned neighbors who didn't have anything significant to add, although one did report hearing a car with a very loud exhaust starting up at about 3.50 a.m., and this was undoubtedly the attacker fleeing the scene. Investigators consulted with Sacramento County Sheriff's Department And it didn't take them long to conclude that this attack was indeed the work of the East Area Rapist. He had come to Stanislaus County, as confirmed by this June 7, 1978, Sacramento Bee article. Dateline Modesto. Sacramento's East Area Rapist struck for the first time here Monday morning 
raping a 27-year-old married woman, and taking $1,500 in cash. Modesto and Sacramento law enforcement officers thoroughly reviewed the actions and words the attacker used before concluding it was the same man, according to police. The rapist, who now has victimized 31 women and girls in Sacramento County, two in Stockton and one in Modesto, has never taken such a large amount of money from a victim, according to Sacramento Sheriff's spokesman Bill Miller. The rapist entered the home of a couple on the northeast portion of Modesto through an unlocked sliding screen door. The woman and her husband were awakened at about 3 a.m. by a man brandishing a knife and wearing a ski mask. The rapist was carrying a flashlight and kept it trained in the couple's eyes, as he had done in previous attacks, according to Modesto police. The victims, who operate a small business, had $1,500 in cash hidden in the house, which they intended to use in a business transaction. The couple told him where the cash was hidden when he demanded money. As the couple's young child slept in another room, the rapist tied up the husband and placed dishes on his back. The woman was taken to another room and raped and tied up with shoelaces. Neither victims were beaten. The rapist left the home 45 minutes after his arrival, and the screams of the couple awakened neighbors who telephoned police. Officers arrived at the home to find the couple still bound. The couple told Modesto police officers that they heard what sounded like a hammer on a pistol being cocked and released, and thought he might have carried a gun. Detectives from the Sacramento Sheriff's Department and Police Department say the attack was typical of previous East Area Rapist attacks, and are convinced that it was the same man. The Sacramento detectives traveled to Modesto Tuesday to speak with the victims and police before concluding that the rapist had struck for the first time in Stanislaus County. The same day this article ran, only two days after the Modesto attack, the East Area Rapist would show up in Yolo County in the town of Davis. And this is home to the large UC Davis College campus. The city of Davis was about 100 miles north of the Modesto attack and about 15 miles west of Sacramento. This time, he would strike at an apartment complex on Wake Forest Drive. And this was highly unusual of the East Area Rapist, who typically targeted single-story homes. At 3.55 a.m., a 21-year-old woman awoke to a hand clamped over her mouth. A voice whispered telling her to relax and to cooperate, and she wouldn't be hurt. The man with the hand over her mouth was wearing a black nylon stocking on his head. The woman felt something pressed into her back, and the man told her that he would blow her brains out if she did not cooperate. The assailant grabbed her arms, forcing them behind her, and then tied her wrist with a shoelace. He told the woman that he just wanted food and money. The attacker held a flathead screwdriver to the woman just over her left eye as he threatened her. She resisted as he tried to tie her up, and he pulled her hair. She started to scream out, but the man stuffed underwear into her mouth to keep her quiet. When he moved down to her feet to tie her ankles, she kicked at him. When the attacker finally felt that the woman was secure, he turned his back and began to look through her drawers. But she continued to quietly struggle to loosen her bindings. The man must have realized this because he turned around suddenly and rushed towards the woman, jumped on top of her, and punched her in the face to try to get her to stay still. But this only made her fight harder, and she struggled against her attacker as he punched her again multiple times. And this was a violent struggle. One of the punches ended up breaking her nose. Dazed and bleeding, the woman relented, and her attacker, out of breath by this point, told her that he would kill her, and she'd never see her friends again. 
The attacker then walked into the kitchen, leaving her by herself. He was only gone a minute when he returned and using a nail file, stabbed her in the face, nearly missing her eye. She cried in pain and the man held the file to her neck and told her to shut up. Then he straddled her from behind and placed his penis in her bound hands. He ordered her to play with it. After a moment, he climbed off of her and stood near her applying lotion to himself. He then climbed back on her and raped her. In a few minutes, it was over. Without saying anything else, the man got up and walked out of the bedroom and out of her apartment. The woman freed herself and tried to call police, but the lines were busy. Remember, this was back before many areas in California had 911. She stumbled into the stairwell outside of her apartment and cried out for help. A neighbor heard her, called the police, who arrived shortly after 4.30 a.m. And like we mentioned, this was a very rough attack. She had been stabbed with a nail file that was about eight inches long. She was punched multiple times, receiving a broken nose in the process. So ultimately, she would be taken to the hospital. But she was able to give the police information about her attacker. She said he was white, about six foot tall, and weighed around 175 pounds. But she also was able to tell police that her attacker had an extremely small penis. During the attack, the rapist had touched her with his bare hands, and she could tell that the skin on his hands was quite rough, very calloused, indicating that maybe he had some type of job as a laborer. She also told police that her wallet was missing. As police questioned apartment residents, they only heard one thing that was out of the ordinary. A resident had witnessed a man who seemed to be watching people, including the victim, in the complex pool about a week before the attack. Another resident reported seeing an out-of-place black Camaro with a spoiler. The police officer detailed in his report that upon arrival at the scene, he had observed a black Camaro exiting the complex and turning north onto Wake Forest. A be on the lookout was issued, but police never found the car or its driver. Davis was a lot closer to Sacramento than Modesto was and police quickly figured this was likely an East Area Rapist attack. Now the East Area Rapist had struck in multiple counties, and it was anybody's guess where he might show up next. Back in Modesto, police had their eyes open. Although it seemed like a one-time attack by the East Area Rapist there, they didn't want to let down their guard. On the night of June 22nd, at 11.15 p.m., a cab driver was parked at the United Airlines Terminal in Modesto at 617 Airport Way. As he waited for fares, he hadn't noticed someone walking up to the cab until the door opened and a man got in. The driver asked the fare where he wanted to go, and the passenger told him to go to Sylvan and Coffee, about five miles away from the airport. When the cab got to the destination, the passenger told the driver to turn west on Sylvan. As soon as the cab driver did that, the man told him to stop. He paid for the ride then gathered his belongings and stepped out of the cab. As the cab driver prepared to pull away, he looked just in time to see the man walking with his luggage towards a field. The only homes close to the field were homes that were under construction. And this cab driver felt uneasy about this man. 
and would later describe him as being white, about 30 to 35 years old, five foot eight to five foot nine with light brown hair. A few hours later, around 1.30 a.m., on the other side of the field on the 1000 block of Grand Prix Drive, a 24-year-old woman was awakened by her dog barking and growling. The woman sat up to see what was going on, and a flashlight flipped on, blinding her. From behind the light, a voice said, Don't move, or I'll blow your heads off. It was at that point that her 25-year-old husband also woke up. The intruder sounded as if he were speaking through a forced whisper. He ordered the couple to roll over on their stomachs. The intruder then threw shoelaces to the woman and ordered her to tie her husband's hands behind his back. As she tied up her husband, the attacker warned them that he just wanted food and money and that if they kept quiet, he would leave. The woman tied her husband's hands, but the man hissed, tie him tighter. Once the male victim's hands were tied, the attacker sat on the bed near him and tied the man's ankles. After the male victim was tied, the intruder turned his attention to the female victim and tied her ankles and hands. He warned them both again if they made a sound, they were dead. He then walked out of the bedroom and the helpless couple heard the man going through items in various rooms and closets But after a few minutes, he came back into the bedroom and ordered the woman to come with him. He led her down the hallway into the living room. The attacker was carrying a knife in his right hand, and as she started to look up at him, he hissed at her. Don't look at me. He made her lie face down on the floor before going into the kitchen and gathering dishes. The man made his way to the bedroom and stacked them on the male victim's back, warning him not to flinch or he would kill them both. The attacker then headed back to the living room and turned on a TV set. He placed towels over the woman's head. The light from the TV set dimly illuminated the room. As the woman laid there, she could hear the attacker going through stuff in her garage. After rummaging in the garage, the man returned to the woman and straddled her. He placed the knife against her cheek and said, whisper to me if you want to live. The man then placed his penis into her bound hands. As he forced the woman to hold his penis, he told her, I've been watching you, and every time I see you, I get a hard on. He then turned her over and untied her feet. He removed her underwear and pulled the straps of her nightgown down off of her shoulders. He raped the woman and afterwards retied her feet. After it was over, the rapist walked into the kitchen and the female victim could hear him putting things into what sounded like a plastic container. Then the house fell silent, but the woman was so afraid to move that she stayed perfectly still for 10 to 15 minutes. She started working the towels off her face and then worked to get her hands and feet untied. She then heard her husband hopping down the hallway towards her. Using a knife from the kitchen, they were able to cut off all of their bindings. They called the Modesto Police Department around 3.15 a.m., and police were there by 3.20. The police quickly determined that the intruder had gained entry to the house via an unlocked sliding glass door. The couple told the police that their attacker was a white male with a thin build, perhaps about six foot tall. Later, the victims would discover that the attacker had made off with their gun, a 357 Magnum, and two rings. 
Although their jewelry would never turn up again, their gun was later found, a month later discarded near the previous Modesto attack, just over a mile away. Modesto police knew following this attack that they had a problem. The East Area Rapists had struck there now twice in less than a month. They would become very vigilant as a result of these attacks. But unbeknownst to them at the time, the East Area Rapists would never strike again in the city of Modesto. But barely 24 hours later, he would strike again in the city of Davis. On the 2400 block of Rivendale Lane in Davis, a family was fast asleep. A husband and wife, both 32 years old, were asleep in the master bedroom. Also in the house, they had their two small children and a 10-year-old relative who was staying with them. The man and woman were awakened by a voice. They opened their eyes to find a masked man shining a light in their eyes. Through what they would later describe as talking through his teeth in a mean whisper, the dark figure told them that he had a 357 Magnum and that he would kill everyone in the house if they didn't cooperate. The man said, don't move or I'll blow your fucking brains out. The intruder told them that if they cooperated, they would be fine and that he just needed money for food and gas. For a split second, the male victim thought of springing from the bed and fighting the man, but he quickly realized that there were too many people's lives at stake, so he cooperated. The attacker then ordered the couple to lie face down on the bed. The woman was made to tie her husband's hands behind his back using black shoelaces that the man had thrown on her husband's back. The assailant then tied the woman's hands behind her back as well. He then went through the victim's closets where he found additional shoelaces and bound the woman's ankles before retying her husband very tightly. The assailant then asked the couple where their money was. The male victim told the man that his wallet was in his pants pocket on the floor, but the attacker couldn't find it. And he stuck his gun into the woman's back saying, where is your husband's wallet? The female victim told the man that she had about $45 in her purse that was in the kitchen. The attacker walked out towards the kitchen when he almost bumped into one of the couple's children in the hall. And this couple was horrified. They could hear the man talking to their child in the hallway, and they were frightened that the man would hurt their child. Awful thoughts raced through the mind of the female victim. She thought of how they had failed to protect their children and the 10-year-old relative that was sleeping over. She wished the man would take what he wanted and leave. And for a moment, she thought about the Little League game that they were supposed to go to in the morning. But as in many of the other incidents, the intruder did not harm the child. But what he did do was manage to lock him in the bathroom. The assailant then went to the kitchen and returned soon after walking into the master bathroom. The couple could hear him ripping and tearing towels. While he was in there, he grabbed a bottle of Vaseline Intensive Care Lotion. The intruder then stuck what felt like an ice pick in the female victim's back, poking the tip against her skin. He warned her, that kid better stay in that bathroom or I'll kill every person in this house. The man walked to the kitchen. When he did, the couple whispered to one another, and the attacker raced back in, warning them not to talk. He told the woman to move away from her husband and to get down on the floor. The female victim who had been sleeping nude was afraid to move because the stranger would see her body. The woman tried to ease down out of the bed, but the man pulled her up 
forcefully by her arm. He told her to walk to the living room. When she got to the living room, he told her to lie face down near the coffee table. The TV was on, but there was no sound. He covered her head with a towel or rope. The man walked around the room. Then all of a sudden, they heard what sounded like a cabinet door shut. The man froze and asked the female victim, what was that? She told him that she didn't know. The man leaned down on her, resting his hand on her buttocks as he listened. After a few seconds, he got up and he walked around some more. When he returned, she could hear him squirting lotion from the bottle that he had taken earlier. The man squatted down on her back and placed his penis in her bound hands, telling her that she had better make it feel good. Right around this time, it popped into the victim's head that this man was probably the hysteria rapist. Her attention turned towards the reports of him having a very small penis, and she found herself taking note of its size. He then raped the woman, and in the process, he threatened her with an ice pick, telling her he would stick it six inches into her back. During the attack, he spoke to her, referring to her by her first name. After the rape was over, he tied the woman's feet together again. She could hear the man getting dressed and walking into the kitchen. He called out to her asking where there was more money. She told the attacker that there were rolls of pennies near the refrigerator. The woman heard the rapist gathering up some of the pennies. And as he did, some of the coins fell to the floor. She thought she could hear the attacker sobbing. Then it was completely quiet. She thought he was gone. She could feel a cool breeze on her skin and she decided to wait 30 minutes before she tried to free herself. But after just a couple of minutes, her husband, who was still bound in the bedroom, yelled out for her, and the woman was able to get her bindings and her blindfold off. When she was free, she saw that the man was gone. She also noticed that he had turned off the TV set. She freed her husband, and they called the police. They also freed their son who was still locked in the bathroom, but was unharmed. They checked on the other two children in the home and found them safe as well. Police received the call from the victims at 4.18 a.m. This was about an hour after the couple were awakened by the predator. Police arrived on the scene at about 4.30. The victims described their attacker as being around 5'10 and thin, wearing dark clothes and a dark ski mask. The female victim thought that the rapist's penis was very thin, but not abnormally short. She couldn't give many more details other than saying he smelled very clean, but had sour breath. Police determined that the rapist had come in through an unlocked door or window. Outside the home near a deck, police found a footprint that they thought definitely belonged to the rapist. It was very distinct with three circles near the toes and three circles near the heel. Police decided to bring in a bloodhound. The dog immediately seized on the man's scent, and it took off steadily following the scent for almost two miles before losing it at the UC Davis private airport. Police questioned neighbors of the victims to see what they might be able to add. One resident on nearby Shire Lane reported that just two days prior to the attack on June 22nd, they had spotted a man looking into windows of houses. Another neighbor saw a man peering over their fence the day before the attack, but he quickly disappeared. 
Perhaps the most interesting event leading up to the attack was told to police by a female neighbor. She said that about a week prior to the attack, she spotted a man standing between her yard and a neighbor's yard. The woman yelled out to the man, asking him what he was doing. He told her that he worked for a developer and they were doing some research for solar power. She actually asked the man a few questions about solar power, but he didn't seem to know very much about it. So this stuck with the homeowner as being extremely suspicious. Something else that was interesting was that in the hours following the attack, this same homeowner found a navy blue jacket on her sidewalk that was not there the previous night. Police learned that the jacket was a brand known as Golden Bear Sportswear. And this jacket was only sold in select stores in Northern California. I think at this point, Mike, we have to regroup and go over some details. Let's back up to the attack 24 hours before this one, almost 100 miles away in Modesto. The timeline is staggering if you consider the possibility that some of these prowlers are also the East Area Rapists. You'd have them attacking in Modesto and exiting at 3.15 a.m. on the morning of the 23rd and arriving at this scene in Davis on the morning of the 24th at about 3.15 a.m. But in between, you also have the mystery guy looking into windows on Shire Lane in Davis on the 22nd. And we can't forget about the man who got a ride from the cab driver the same night at around 11.15 p.m. in Modesto. So this is a whole bunch of bouncing around for this guy in a little over 24 hours. Yeah, Morph, he would have to be constantly driving back and forth from Modesto to Davis during that time if, and it's a big if, all of these rapists and prowlers are all the East Area rapists. So is it possible that some of these guys were not all the same person? And I think the answer for me, Morph, is not only is it possible it's more than likely that not all of these people that have been seen are the same person. Now, you have to say technically it is possible, right? But when you factor in all the driving back and forth, just doesn't leave a lot of room in the timeline. Now, one possibility that Contra Costa County investigator Paul Holes thought of was that the East Area Rapist may have had access to a plane. And that seems like a theory that could explain him being very mobile and covering so much ground back and forth during that period of time, which was less than 48 hours. The cab driver picked up a guy who may very well have been the East Area Rapist at the airport in Modesto, and the Bloodhound tracked the scent in this recent attack to the UC Davis airport. And I think that's a great point, Mike. I think we also need to consider what would make him need to be back and forth during this two-day period in both Modesto and Davis. Did he have some sort of business function or event that he needed to travel to? It's very unlikely they simply randomly pick places on a map and just travel to them with no plan. After all, we know that the East Air Rapist had stalked and prowled most of his victims prior to attacking them. So perhaps he had reason to be in these areas and did recon while he was there. Or a more frightening alternative might be that perhaps he had not chosen these victims randomly, but that he knew them somehow. Paul Holes even told us that it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility 
that the East Air rapist targeted the couples in the attacks, not because of the female, but because he was angry with the male victim due to some perceived wrong that the East Air rapist felt had been done to him by the male. The possibilities seem endless for investigators. Now, just like Modesto, Davis was on high alert. But unlike Modesto, the East Air rapist would strike again in Davis, and it would only be about two weeks later when he did. On July 6, 1978, just after the 4th of July holiday, the East Area Rapist would strike on the 2000 block of Amador Avenue in Davis. The victim would be a 33-year-old woman who was home with her two small children. She was a Sacramento State College student who had just completed her summer session the day before. She was separated from her husband, who was a doctor. She returned home from a date just after midnight and immediately went to bed at about 2:50 a.m the woman woke up to the sight of a flashlight being shined in her eyes a voice shattered the silence don't move or i'll blow your fucking head off and i'll kill your boys the woman later recounted that the voice sounded like it contained a slight stutter the intruder told the woman do you see this do you see this gun The terrified woman looked into his hand and noticed he was holding a small handgun. He told the woman that he needed food and money for his van. She told the intruder that she had cash in her purse. The assailant ordered the woman to turn over her on her stomach, and then he tied her wrists and ankles very tightly using brown shoelaces. The man then placed some sort of material or towel over her head to act as a blindfold. After she was secured, the man left the room, and she could hear him going through the drawers in the house. He came back in periodically, and upon one of these returns, he tapped her head with something heavy and hard that felt like a gun. He was angry about not finding much cash in her purse. She told him that she had more cash in the checkbook in a desk. The man didn't seem to understand what she meant by desk. She repeated, it's in the desk, which seemed to confuse the man. During one of the times that he returned to the bedroom, the man placed his lubricated penis into her hands. He asked her if she knew what it was, and she told the attacker that it was his penis. After a moment, he turned the woman over and raped her. She could smell cigarette smoke on his breath. During the assault, or just as it ended, the man started to sob. It sounded to the woman as if he was saying, I hate you, Bonnie, or I hate you, Mommy. He left her alone and again wandered around the house. She heard him go in and out of the sliding glass door that led to the patio. The man told her at one point that he was going outside on the patio to eat. Around 4 a.m., the rapist left the home without the victim knowing. After a period of time of not hearing any noise, she was able to free herself She woke up her children, and together they made their way to a neighbor's house to call the police, and this was around 4.30 a.m. When police arrived, the woman recounted for them what she had seen and heard. She was very shaken. She actually didn't remember if he had a mask on or not. It happened so quickly, and it was in the dark. It was just a blur to her. She did recall that the man was wearing a plaid shirt that was white with red, blue, and green plaid on it. She told him that the man's actions were robotic, which, as we know, in the East Area Rapist case, is sort of like his script. 
what he did and said was all just part of his process during these attacks. And he usually didn't deviate from the script. She added that the man was about five foot nine. The victim was taken to Davis Community Hospital, arriving there just after 6 a.m. After she was examined at the hospital, she was able to speak more calmly and detail the events of her day leading up to the attack. It was pretty unremarkable. Nothing really stood out to her. Her babysitter and the babysitter's boyfriend had watched the children from 9 p.m. the night before until she arrived home later that night. Neither the babysitter nor the boyfriend saw or heard anything unusual while they were there. When the woman arrived home and the babysitter left, she checked all the doors before going to sleep to make sure they were locked. Although police did not initially see an obvious point of entry, it was determined that a small hole had been punched through the lock in the kitchen window using a tool or possibly a screwdriver. The screen was removed and discarded in bushes on the property. Investigators felt that the way in which this hole was punched made it possible that this offender had some specific skill or tools that helped him enter in this manner. Looking around outside, the victim pointed out that the patio furniture had been rearranged. Investigators also found a herringbone pattern tennis shoe print in the yard, and the same print was found inside on the kitchen counter. Police turned their efforts towards questioning neighbors to see if they had seen or heard anything unusual leading up to or following the attack. One neighbor told them that they had seen a man who appeared to be in his 20s riding around the street on a 10-speed bike a few nights before the attack. The neighbor thought that this man looked out of place. Another neighbor saw an unusual man walking around on the night of July 4th. He appeared to be around 30 years old and about 5 foot 9. The neighbor said that the man wore a poncho and had a beard that looked to be fake. He walked with a cane and was definitely not someone that they recognized from the area. Police were called that night about this man. They came out to investigate, but by the time they got there, the man had vanished. This was just another example of odd and out of place people being seen preceding an East Area Rapist attack. Davis PD reached out to Sergeant Jim Bevins of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department. And after speaking with him, There was no doubt this was the work of the East Area Rapist. On July 14th, a little over a week after the attack, the victim had to go out of town and ask someone to house-sit. While house-sitting, this person discovered a knife that was used in the attack, hidden inside a box of Velveeta cheese in the refrigerator. While it didn't provide any clues, it was further proof that the East Area Rapist's actions had effects that lasted beyond the actual attacks. After these attacks outside of Sacramento County, the East Area Rapist once again seemed to disappear. Over the next three months, there were no confirmed attacks any place in Northern California that were attributed to the East Area Rapist. Sergeant Bevins and his team believed that the East Area Rapist was not done terrorizing people and was moving south and would show up in other counties. Bevins reached out to some of these counties to warn them, but his fears were met with doubt and skepticism from some police in these other counties. One of the counties that was warned was Contra Costa County, which was over 60 miles southwest of Sacramento County. I'm Larry Crompton. I'm a retired lieutenant from Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department, 
And at the time that uh, the East Area Rapist uh, hit our area, uh, I was a sergeant, and I was put on the task force once it was formed. And prior to that, I was working in the crime lab. So when he did hit, um, I was sent out uh, to do some work on it. And then I knew nothing about the rapes that were happening in Sacramento until August of 1978. And uh, learned about ear from Lieutenant Root and Sergeant Bevins from Sacramento Sheriff's Office. And I was contacted by the sheriff, and he said that uh, they were coming down to have a meeting in Concord, and he wanted me to go to that meeting. And when when I was there and they started talking about the East Area Rapist, uh, like I said, we knew nothing about it, even though this was going on in Sacramento, and they had already had 37 attacks by then. But back in those days, if you didn't live in the town or if you didn't get the newspaper from that town, a lot of times you didn't hear anything. So it came as a real shock to us that that was going on. And uh, they said that they wanted to talk to us about it because they believed that the East Area Rapist was coming down to our area and that we should be ready for it. And um, unfortunately... um, we didn't look at it that way. Uh, we looked at it as this is Contra Costa County and things like that don't happen. And unfortunately, in October, it did happen. Lieutenant Root and uh, Sergeant Bevins contacted us again and uh, we looked at it. We looked at the reports, went over it with uh, Sergeant Bevins. And I, I became very close with Sergeant Bevins as working this. And uh, we looked at it and said, yes, definitely is your East Area Rapist because of the way that it was done. And uh, from there on, it just got worse. In the early morning hours of October 7th, 1978, an attack occurred around 2.30 a.m. on Bell Ann Court. This was in the town of Concord in Contra Costa County. A 26-year-old woman and her 29-year-old husband woke to a man shining a light in their eyes. The man was wearing a ski mask and holding a flashlight in his left hand and a revolver in his right. The man whispered through clenched teeth, I just want food and money. I'll kill you if you don't do what I say. And the man warned the couple not to look at him or he would kill them. In typical East Area Rapist fashion, He threw shoelaces to the woman and ordered her to tie her husband's hands behind his back as he lay face down. She complied, and when she was finished tying her husband, the intruder tied her hands as well as her ankles. He then took the shoelaces from the victim's shoes and tied the male victim's ankles before tying his wrists even tighter. Once the couple is secured, The attacker asked the couple where their purse and wallet were. They instructed him on where he could find them, and the man left the room. A few minutes later, he returned asking the couple if that's all they had, and they assured him that it was. The attacker left the room and proceeded to ransack the house, going through drawers and closets. After a short while, he returned to the bedroom carrying plates, which he stacked on the couple's backs, warning them that if the plates made noise, he would blow their fucking heads off. The intruder wandered off into the house where he continued rummaging. The couple estimated he was gone for about 30 minutes. 
When the man returned, he ordered the woman from the bed and told her, don't look at me or I'll cut your fucking head off. He forced the woman at knife point to walk out of the bedroom towards the living room. He then forced her to the floor in front of the fireplace and warned her that if she didn't do everything he said, he would kill everyone in the house. The female victim was terrified and immediately thought of her baby that was sleeping in another room. The assailant turned on the TV and turned the volume all the way down. He threw a blanket over it, which dimly illuminated the room. He went to get more dishes in the kitchen, carried them into the bedroom, and stacked them on the male victim's back, warning him that if the plates fell, everyone would be dead. The attacker walked back to the living room and to the female victim who was lying in the same spot. He cut her nightgown in several spots and then tore it off piece by piece. While he did this, the man threatened to kill everyone in the house and to cut off her baby's ear, promising her that he would bring it to her. She could feel the man's breath behind her. She heard him lubricating himself and masturbating behind her. She knew what was about to happen. As he masturbated, he called the victim by her first name and told her that he had been seeing her for a long time. He raped the woman, doing very disgusting things in the process. After the rape, the man walked to the corner of the room and paused there. It sounded as if he was crying. After composing himself, the man walked out into the kitchen and was talking out loud. He said, my main man wants gold and silver. He walked in and out of the garage and also in and out of the sliding glass door a few times. And then the house was completely silent. The woman laid perfectly still without making a sound. Eventually, she hopped up and made her way to the sliding door and was able to get it shut and locked. Still bound, she managed to reach the phone and call police at 4.42 a.m. They were on the scene by 5 and began their investigation. The woman stated that a few minutes after the rapist had left, she heard a car drive by outside but did not hear it start up. This indicated that perhaps the car was not parked very close to their home. The couple described the rapist as being white in his 20s or early 30s and standing about 5 foot 11 to 6 feet tall. They were able to determine that the attacker had made off with cash and jewelry. The point of entry was determined to be a front window. As in a recent attack, the intruder had demonstrated knowledge and skill using a tool to somehow cut a small hole in the window and then disengage the locking mechanism. Police found evidence that the side garage door had also been tampered with, finding a rectangular hole about four inches by two inches in the door. Investigators also noted that the side gate in the fenced-in backyard was wide open. Police went on to question residents and neighbors. A resident on Hollis Court, very near to the victim's home, had reported hearing a prowler at her door and windows just a few hours before the attack. When police examined her windows, they found scratch marks on both the windows and screens that were similar to those found at the victim's home. And the first thing that jumps out at me, Morph, is why some of these people are not calling the police. It's late at night and you hear someone trying to get into your house. You would think that your first instinct would be to call the police. Now, we're making assumptions that these people didn't call the police, 
but it's because there's no mention of it in the police reports. Other neighbors shared similar stories with police. One of them told police of a very detailed encounter he had with a prowler just a few nights before the attack. His teenage daughter had seen a prowler in their yard around 1.30 a.m. and woke up her father, who had been asleep. Once he was awake, they heard noises in the backyard, and he grabbed his shotgun. He ran to the back window and quickly opened it, pointing the shotgun at the startled intruder. The man yelled out to the stranger, asking him why he was in his yard, and the prowler stated that he was there looking for a friend. The homeowner felt that the man was definitely lying and yelled to him to get out of his yard or he would blow his head off. The prowler ran off towards the front yard, and the homeowner raced towards his front door and out into the yard, but the prowler was gone. The prowler was described as being about five foot nine, white or Hispanic, and weighing perhaps 175 pounds. Around midnight, just 90 minutes before this incident, a different neighbor was awakened by someone entering their home. The man woke up and scared off the intruder. When he looked out of his window, he saw two young men in their 20s run off. Several neighbors and residents on nearby streets reported prowlers, out-of-place cars, dogs barking, and obscene phone calls in the days and weeks prior to the attack. But despite all of this activity, not many clues were found. But on the day after the attack, one neighbor found a badge in her yard. Keith Kamos and I discussed this badge on the show that we appeared in together, The Golden State Killer, It's Not Over, which premiered on Investigation Discovery Network recently. Keith, who you heard from in the Visalia Ransacker segment this season, has done some extensive research on this badge for the book that he co-authored, Case Files of the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. The seven-pointed star badge that was found contained the words Special Officer on it and contained the California seal in the center of it. After researching it, Keith discovered that it was most likely a security guard's badge of some sort and not one that would have been issued to anyone in law enforcement. He was able to trace the manufacturer to Rhode Island and learn that there may be countless numbers of these badges in California and that this particular badge could not be traced to a particular owner. This opened up the possibility that the Easter rapist, assuming he may have been the one that dropped this badge, could have been some sort of security guard, but there was no way to know for sure. After the attack in Concord, Contra Costa County would become part of the investigation into the East Area Rapist. We did get involved, and uh, um, Sergeant Bevins from Sacramento uh, got the reports and went over it and uh, told us that, uh, yes, there is no doubt this is him. This is the way that he did it. He wore the ski mask. He tied them up. Uh, very, very, very tight and um, threatened. And the one thing about the East Area Rapist, right from the very start, um, he threatened to kill and he wanted to kill. And because of the way that he went through this, uh, when we met with the victims and you could see the fear in them and the tremble in their voices when they were talking, you knew that they really did think they were going to die. And uh, once I got on the task force, and I went to the Vacaville Medical Center uh, to talk to one of the psychiatrists there that works with rapists, and I gave her a couple of reports. 
and asked her if she'd look at them and then uh, said I would come back the following week and uh, talk to her. So I did, and uh, she said, yes, I met with my rapist. I went over these, and they say you had better catch him. He wants to kill, and he will kill. And I said, why hasn't he? And she says, well, he just hasn't found the justification yet. So in going over all the reports, one of the things that, that I found was that in, in his first ten attacks, six of them were teenagers, six victims. And the youngest two were 15 years old. And in, in Northern California, out of all the ones that he hit, 14 were teenagers. And in looking at the reports and in talking to Sergeant Bevins, uh, we felt that he had a hatred towards women. And his first 15 attacks were single women. There was no male in the home. And then the Sacramento Bee uh, printed a piece in the paper about there was never a man in the house. And his 16th attack, there was a man in the house. And still the threat, the threat to kill. And he would show them a gun. He would place the gun against the man's head, threaten to kill him, threaten to kill his wife, threaten to cut off the ears of their children if they had them. No one saw his face because he always wore a mask. And when there was a man in the house, he started putting dishes on their back. And he threatened them. If I hear these rattle, I'll kill your wife. I'll come back and I'll kill you. So we knew right from the start that he did want to kill. That was his number one priority. The sex, the rape was not. It was the terror that he put in him that uh, was there for him. And uh, it just got worse as it went on. I think that what was going on in Sacramento, he knew that they were getting close to him. And during that time, he was hitting other places, Stockton, Modesto, uh, Davis, and it seemed like he was heading down our way, especially when he was hitting Davis. Uh, Davis was on our route. And uh, in talking to uh, Sergeant Bevins, he said he, he really thinks that he is coming down our way and felt that he was going to come to Concord and um, mainly because that's one of the major cities in our area and it fit um, the kind of areas that he was hitting in Sacramento and um, their, their thoughts on it were true and I really think it was because he felt that they were getting close. We asked Larry for his opinion on why it was that the East Area Rapist may have chosen the neighborhood in Concord that he did. Well, one of the things that, that showed up in these is that each one of these places was not far from the major thoroughfare, where if he had five minutes uh, before anything happened, he could be in traffic on the major roads and nobody would notice him. Um, he would park his vehicle uh, in such a way when, when we had bloodhounds uh, follow and find out where he had parked, found that he parked the vehicle between houses. So it didn't look like uh, 
if anybody looked out their their window and said, "Oh, why is that car parked in front of my house?" It wasn't, and uh, so we knew that he had a plan, and where he was hitting in our area, the areas did match where he was hitting in those other areas, the types of homes, and they were middle class and um, well-built and set up so that he could, uh, prior to his attacks, go into that area and wander around and really not be seen or at least not noticed the way that he could do it. But he would be near uh, an area where he could escape in a hurry. And one of the things that uh, were noticed, and we didn't at the time, was that when he went into a place, he would open the gate going into their backyard, and he'd leave the gate open. He never closed them. And we never figured that out uh, as to why either. But what we did figure out is that uh, his first rape, he had a plan, and he stayed with that plan. And because of that, I felt that uh, he can't possibly be a young teenager. Um, you can't just, I know you'd have to start with uh, uh, looking in windows and, and maybe killing dogs or pets or whatever, but he had a plan that he followed. And because of it, I thought, oh, he's got to have a record before this. So I went up and I got all parolees from uh, different areas, and I got 6,000 parolees out of a six-month period prior to his first attack that we knew about and went through them and uh, eliminated a lot by age and the fact that they were in prison and finally got it down out of that to about 41 that we could never contact, never located. So I thought that uh, if he had been in prison, he would have learned and uh, possibly had raped before and uh, got this going. But we knew that he had a plan because if something happened during this and it didn't turn out the way that he wanted, he would leave. Despite having the knowledge that the Easter rapist was now in Contra Costa County and being on high alert, the police couldn't stop him and he would attack less than a week later in the same city, only a quarter mile away. But we'll discuss that case on the next episode of Criminology. And we'll hear more from Larry Crompton in the next episode. And for the very first time anywhere, a victim that has never before spoken publicly about her attack talks with us. My name is Michelle. I was um, the victim number 40 of the East Area Rapist. So we'll have all of that and more in the next episode of Criminology. But before we leave, we want to play a very important voicemail that we received from a listener. This is a person that was so touched after listening to this season of Criminology and hearing Jane tell her story that she wanted to share her own difficult story. Hey, guys. Um, I'm a listener on the East Coast, and... Um, I just wanted to say that the podcast is really great. Um, <clears throat> I really like that you dedicated it to the victims and the survivors of uh, the Golden State Killer. Um, 
because I think that's really important. And I also want to say that I um, I think it's really special that you had the fifth victim of the Golden State Killer, the East Area Rapist, um, on the show to to tell her story. Um, it was it was actually life changing for me. I am a survivor of sexual assault and something about her story, something about the tone of her voice, about the way that she talked about being a thriver, not just a survivor. Um, it, it really just, I don't know. It, it made me feel like, okay, I can handle this. And uh, as you heard, that caller's voicemail ended abruptly during the call. We don't know who she is, but we definitely invite her to call back and finish sharing her story. And we really appreciate her reaching out to us and telling us just how much Jane's story affected her. If anyone out there wants to leave us a voicemail about this case or about the show, you can do so by calling 661-77-CRIME. We may play your message on the air. And once again, we'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash criminology. And if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Criminology Pod or on Facebook by searching The Criminology Podcast. You can also join our Facebook discussion group, Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. And if you like the show, please make sure you go out, give us a five-star review. That really goes a long way to helping other people find the show. And as we close, we want to invite you to check out two podcasts that we think you'll really enjoy. One is a brand new podcast called Forensic Files based on the true crime TV show that many of you probably grew up watching. And the other podcast is by our friends at Crime Junkie. Give these podcasts a listen. We think you'll really enjoy them. The cases. We gotta find who wrote this note. We do that, we find the killer. The science. To find out police used luminol, a chemical which glows when it comes into contact with the iron component in blood. The drama. But where was the rifle? And which man was telling the truth? Forensic Files. The legendary true crime show is now a podcast. Join investigators as they take on the toughest cases with cutting-edge scientific tools. Subscribe now with Apple Podcasts. With new episodes every Monday and Thursday, you'll never miss out on getting your forensic fix. Hello, everyone. I'm Ashley Flowers. And I'm Britt. And I bet you're here because you love true crime, which is why you should check out our podcast, Crime Junkie. Every Monday, I tell you about whatever crime case I've been obsessing over that week. We try to stick to the facts and not dive into any crazy rabbit holes or wild speculation, so the stories stay suspenseful and they're easy to follow. We cover lesser-known cases that haven't been done on other podcasts. Like episode 18, which is about a 30-year unsolved murder of a young girl in Indiana whose murderer taunted the community with notes for years. 
Or we cover cases everyone is talking about, but with our own special twist. Like in episode 20, where we talk about Adnan Syed. His story became famous when Serial covered it back in 2014. But did you know that Serial didn't tell you everything? We will fill you in on the key points you have to know, which might actually change your mind about the case. So if you're looking to get an extra fix of true crime, check out Crime Junkie every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts.